All right, so we're going to be reading out of Matthew 5 today, verse 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, everyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teachings other, teaches, teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in, great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Perfect. You nailed it. Well, thank you guys, everybody, for being here today. I'm going to, I got a new podium this week because I wanted a one that locked so it didn't kind of fall down when I was speaking, you know, and now it, it's, too, it's too upright. So we're going to do that and then we're going to lock it and we will have no problems. See what I mean? See what I mean? Well, thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, For those of you who are looking up here and going, who is that guy? My name is Nick Nepper. My wife Ashley and I uh, came to be the pastors here roughly a month ago, and it's been a whirlwind. Uh, It's been really incredible. And uh, we are both excited that we're in a beautiful place where there's, like, beautiful trees that turn color. We were in Des Moines, but in Des Moines, there's not as many trees is up here. The rolling hills and the trees, it's just gorgeous, and we really, really love it. Um, And so uh, I just kind of wanted to say thank you and reiterate a couple things that Ashley said. Next week, we will have that installation, and it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to culminate kind of some work that we've been doing, because we're going to get the everything painted. We got the windows tinted. I don't know. That was, it works. Uh, And uh, we're just making some kind of routine updates. And what we're really trying to do, Ashley said it, I'm just repeating everything my wife said, like usual. But uh, uh, we really do just want to create space for people. Um, We know that the kingdom of God is this thing that moves forward. And as people get a vision for it, other people want to be a part of it. And we want to create space uh, for those people when they come in. So that's our goal and purpose. And uh, but it's not something we just want to have done. It's something we want to do together as a, as a community, as a family, as a church. So uh, that's the most important thing to us, that we all do it together and feel like we're a part of what is and will continue to happen at our church. So that's the goal. All right? I'm done with the service announcements. So uh, when I was a young man, and still kind of as a relatively young man, uh, I had this idea in my head that being a good person was the most important thing. So from a very young age, I don't know if it was because I was a firstborn son or what it was, but being good or at least being seen as good was something that was very, very important to me. And so this uh, carried through into school. I, I I wanted to be the good kid in class, right? I wanted to be the one that the teachers liked. I wanted to be the person who got praised. I wasn't that good at school when I was young. I had a learning disability. Uh, I couldn't read very well. But uh, I could be a good boy. And so I did that as often as possible. I tried to be good. Teachers, and that, it worked, right? It tends to work. Teachers give you good grades. They treat you well. You, you're rewarded for being good in our society. It's something that's normal. 
But this desire uh, to be seen as good came with some struggles as well, right? Uh, I wanted to be seen as good so much that I did not want to show people those darker sides of my personality, right? I didn't want people to see the parts of me that weren't necessarily good. I just wanted them to see the good parts of me and then praise me for those parts, right? And so I, I think we all do this to a certain extent. We, we hide ourselves. We shield ourselves off from people. We don't show people our true selves. And this being good carried over into all dis- different types of areas. It carried over into church. Ashley and I were Mary and Joseph in the fifth grade Christmas play together, foreshadowing. But I got that because I was a good boy in Sunday school, right? Because I listened and I memorized my stuff and I liked the Bible and those type of things. I got that because I was good. That's what I was praised for. And if my being good in class in church was what was important in life and it was what got me praised or got me treated well, then this natural kind of feeling rose up in my head and in my heart that if I was that being good is what God wanted me to do as well for him, Right? But I ran into an issue there because I knew myself well enough to know that I was not good, right? And I knew that God saw me for who I actually was, right? And so I could try to act good for him, but ultimately I wasn't going to be able to be good because he saw the parts of me that were selfish and lustful and deceitful and bad, right? This goodness thing that I, this goodness routine that I was keeping up wasn't actually paying off. And I knew that God saw all those things. God saw that I was lazy, that I bossed my brothers around a lot. I told him how to rake leaves and stuff. Uh, he, looked, he knew that I looked down on people that I thought weren't smart, right? And because God saw all of this, he knew that I was not in fact good. And so he was, in my mind, displeased with me. And I could not please God, so for a little while, I just tried to run away from him because I knew in my heart I was not good. I could not please him, and I would just, and I just ignored it, right? Ran away from it. Just get out of the gaze of a God who saw me for who I actually was, right? We do this. We distract ourselves all the time. Now, this was the case until I came to this realization, the the idea that we're kind of going to explore today this truth that God loves us so much, even in the midst of our sin and in the midst of our not goodness, that he was willing in the person of Jesus to take our sin and our shame and by so doing, exchange our sin for his righteousness. We're going to explore today this idea of Christ being our righteousness. Or in your notes, it says Jesus wants to give you new clothes. I I came to realize what C.S. Lewis says. Uh, This is what Lewis says. The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. You see, what I had assumed was that God worked like everyone else in my life, right? That what he wanted was behavior modification. What he wanted was for me to be good so that he could love me, right? Right? But what I discovered is that righteousness is something God gives you and me as a gift so that we can live the rest of our lives as a gift. So that's the idea we're going to explore today, this idea of Christ being our righteousness, the idea that because of his unconditional love for us, because his love is unconditional, he's willing, he was willing in the person of Jesus to come, 
to die on a cross and to exchange his righteousness for our sinfulness or his goodness for our not so goodness. So um, turn in your Bibles back to the passage that we read today in Matthew 5. In order to really for us to understand what Jesus is saying to the disciples here in Matthew 5, we kind of have to dig down deep into the subtext of uh, what was happening in Judaism in the first century. So bear with me as we take a little bit of a history lesson. So Jesus is in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, essentially, in Matthew 5, right? So he's in the middle of revolutionizing these people's view of religion and of God. He's dropping this unbelievable truth on everybody. And in the middle of that, he turns to his disciples and he says in uh, verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is he saying there? And what, what exactly does that mean? And we kind of have to crawl into the minds and into the hearts of a first century Jew to understand this. So um, a, a righteous person in, the Old in an Old Testament sense is one who observed the law, okay? If, you, if you've ever read the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, uh, you'll realize that there's a lot of kind of boring law-based stuff in there, Right? Who has, been, who has ever read that and gone, I'm just going to skip this? And then you go to something, some fun story or something like that. So obeying those laws was how, for the most part, the Jewish mind thought they could be righteous before God. Now, they weren't necessarily supposed to think that. Jewish people uh, did not necessarily believe that the law literally uh, was the thing that made them good. They made them God's people. They thought God made him their people. He, he chose them. They had this special relationship with them. But they did believe that following the law was the means to the righteous life that God desired for them, right? And so if following, uh, and so they followed the law to the best of their ability. They, they tried hard to follow the law. And at times in their history, when they didn't follow the law, when they, when they lost their way, when they lived unrighteously, they had things like armies come in and wipe them out or kill them. And it was, it's often said in the Bible that God allowed the nations to have their way with Israel, right? And so Israel, in some sense, the Jewish people, in some sense, believed that their being good, their following the law, allowed them favor with God, right? It allowed them to have God's favor. And that sounds a lot like me in fifth grade, doesn't it? And Jesus in Jesus' day, the Pharisees are these people who are trying to follow the law to the best of their ability because they are living in an occupied Israel at this time. Rome had taken over pretty much all of the known world, and Rome was occupying Israel. And so the Pharisees believed that in the same way that uh, Israel had been occupied and taken off to captivity in the past, they were, in some sense, still in an exilic state. They were, some, in some sense, still in exile because they were occupied by a foreign power. And so what Pharisees believed is if they followed the law to the best of their ability, God then would begin to have favor on them again, and he would, he would kick the Romans out, and that they would, they would have this sovereign nation again that would be dedicated to God. And so Pharisees were so extreme in this belief that they drew up all these types of laws that were even fences around the actual laws. So they, they made up extra rules that would keep you away from actually breaking the original rule. Does that make sense? So you could break a rule that a Pharisee would hold and not actually transgress a law in the Old Testament. 
because they just didn't even want to get close to breaking these laws because they believed that their righteousness was derived from following rules, from being good. They believed that if they could just get everyone to do this, God would have favor on their nation, right? If, we would just, if everybody would just turn back to God in a sense, that God would then have favor on their nation and kick the Romans out. This is what Scott McKnight, the New Testament scholar, says um, about Pharisees. He says that Pharisees would have been very good neighbors. They were good and upstanding people. They followed the law to the best of their ability. They attempted to be righteous in everything they said and did. And Jesus looks at his disciples in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and what does he say? He begins to deconstruct for his disciples this very idea of righteousness. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. You can't take part in the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples are rightly flabbergasted because no one was more righteous than the Pharisees. If a Pharisee can't get, if the the righteousness of the Pharisees doesn't ascend to the level of righteousness that I need to get into the kingdom of heaven, nobody's got enough righteousness, right? Nobody is good enough if they're not good enough because they're, relatively speaking, perfect. They follow all the laws. They don't break any of them, right? So what, what what are the disciples to do? What are we to do with this? Jesus is saying to his disciples essentially the same thing that I was asking myself, right? That if my goodness isn't good enough, how am I going to please God? How am I going to take part in the kingdom of God in Jesus' language? How am I going to please him? So what the disciples probably felt in Matthew 5, when Jesus tells them that they had to have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees is probably the same thing you and I are feeling right now, right? How are we going to please God? What are we going to do? But the thing is, this message that Jesus gives the disciples that was probably very off-putting for them really tore down all the kind of religious structures that they had in their head about how they should or should not be living their lives is actually the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, knowing that, knowing that no human being was able to live up to the standard of God, came to earth, put on flesh as we looked, like, looked at at previous weeks, did not simply sit at a distance from us, but actually came and dwelt with us. And he bore our guilt and shame and wickedness and not goodness on the cross, right? This is the good news. This is what it looks like to gain righteousness. Christ came to be our righteousness for us, knowing full well that we could not be righteous in and of ourselves. Turn in your Bibles. If, oh, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles under the chairs in front of you if you want to look at them. Uh, I think it's always good to grab a Bible if you don't have one and look because I lie a lot up here. <laughs> Often. So if you want one, you can grab one under the chair. Uh, so turn to Philippians 3, uh, seven, verses 7 through 11. This is what Paul says. Paul's just kind of furthering this argument that Jesus begins to make in Matthew 5. He says, beginning in verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing 
Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And here's uh, where the rubber meets the road, verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from, uh, that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead, right? Paul is re-articulating the same idea that Jesus is, is beginning to tell his disciples in Matthew 5, that while the law was not in and of itself bad, right, the, the very fact that Jesus gave the law in some sense was grace, to, tell, to help people see good from bad, right? To help people see what the character of God actually looks like when it's displayed in public. So the law in and of itself isn't actually bad. But the problem is that when we see the law, when we see uh, these rules, or when we see this attempt to meet a standard of goodness as a means by which we get God's favor, right? The Pharisees came to believe that being good could make God happy with them. But Jesus shows us that God so loved us, even in the midst of our not goodness, even in the midst of our guilt and shame and sin, that he was willing to be for us what we could not be for ourselves. But does this Jesus make, but how does this Jesus making me righteous thing actually work? How does it work, right? So how does a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago actually cover my sin and my shame and my guilt, right? How, do, how does that function? Because I am the, I'm the one who sinned, right? I'm the one who did the bad things. I'm the one who knows the things that go on in my mind that aren't good. How, how is Jesus sufficient for me? How is he my righteousness? Jesus' death and resurrection show us that Jesus came to be for us what we could not be for ourselves. But how does that work? How does Jesus take our wrong relationship with God and give us his right relationship with God. Sometimes in the Bible, the truths that we kind of look at are so big and can, not confusing, but mysterious because they come from God that it's hard to get our brains around it. And, and the good thing about that is that the Bible is oftentimes giving us imagery, giving us pictures or metaphors to help us understand these ideas and not like a not in, in a propositional type of way, but rather in an imaginative type of way, in the same way that you understand a story to be true, right? And so one of these stories, one of these images that we're given about, to help us understand this idea of Christ being our righteousness is given to us in Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. So if you turn your Bibles there, we'll spend the rest of our time in this passage today. Uh, this is what Zechariah says beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel 
of the Lord stood by. Notice the picture here in this passage. The prophet is uh, given of, the, of Joshua, the high priest, and that's important, in ancient, because the high priest in ancient Judaism was the one who made atonement for the people, right? The high priest was the one who went into the Holy Holies or put his hand on the scapegoat and put the sins of the people on the, that goat and sent him out into the wilderness as, as a symbolic way of saying, God has sent your sin away from you, right? So this is the role of the high priest in Jewish religion. And Joshua, the high priest in this passage, is seen as having dirty, dirty clothes, dirty dirty robes, and having those same robes replaced with something new, right? Something, something gleaming, something brilliant. He's been given new clothes. Now in Hebrews 5, we see uh, that the high priest in, in the Old Testament was actually a foreshadowing of Jesus, who takes up that mantle, that office of high priest, but he takes it up in a perfect way. He's the one who makes atonement for us. Only Jesus did not make atonement for us. He actually, he was both the one who made atonement and he was the offering. He was both the priest and the the offering. And because of this, he personally took our sin in order to free us from the sting of sin. He took our guilt in order to free us from the guilt that plagues us. And the prophet Zechariah gives us this beautiful image of what this looks like. On the cross, essentially, Jesus tried to Jesus exchanged clothes with us, with us. He took our dirty rags, our sin, our pain, our guilt, our shame, all of those things. He took those dirty clothes that we had and he exchanged them based on nothing we did for ourselves, based on everything that he did. He exchanged our rags for his beautiful clothing. And now because of the work on the Christ of the cross, we bear his righteousness. We wear his clothes. And we no longer need to bear the guilt and the shame of, that those clothes had. We no longer have to bear the guilt and the shame that our sin bore upon us. We no longer have to be weighted down by our sin, but we can rather walk forward in the knowledge that because of the work of Christ, we have now attained a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees. See, you see, when Jesus said this to the Pharisees, he, it, was a trick, it was a trick question. The disciples thought, there's no way we can attain a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees. And Jesus says to them, you're right, you can't. And that's why I've come. That's what I came to do. We no longer have to try to be good in order to please God, to, to achieve some level of goodness so that then God is happy with us. Jesus has become our goodness, and God loved us enough to come to, the, come to us in the form of Jesus to be our righteousness. The reality of, and the truth of the cross is that God loved us so much. He s- saw us in the midst of our guilt and our shame. He saw those things that plague us, in the back of our heads, those things we knew we did when we were 15 or 35 or 60 that we can't quite get free of. Yet he comes to us in the form of Jesus. He dies on the cross. And what he says to us is, I want to take the guilt and the shame of that thing away from you. I will bear it for you on the cross and I will give you my clothes in return. It's this beautiful picture of what happens to us 
when we, when we give our lives to Jesus. He exchanges our dirty rags, our sin, for his beautiful robes. Now, this has numerous implications for us as a church, right? What this means for us is that um, this type of community where this idea, this idea that Christ is our righteousness has actually taken hold, has actually taken hold in our minds and our, excuse me, it has taken mind in our hearts. This idea that none of us is good enough on our own, we are all equal, and that we are all equally in need of the work of Christ transforms and changes the way we think about ourselves. What it does is it actually obliterates spiritual pride, right? Because if I don't, if I can't in and of myself be righteous, right? And Christ is in his very self my righteousness, and he's taken the guilt and the shame off of my shoulders that I've carried for oh so long, we, are then, we can then become this really open and beautifully inviting community, this community where people share and confess their sins and shortcomings. And when they do that, what they are met with is not judgment, is not outcast, but is complete and utter acceptance, right? Can you imagine coming to a place where when you confess your darkness, when, you, when you're open and honest about your sin, you meet the face of somebody that says, me too, me too. In the same way that that person's filthy rags have been taken by Christ, your, my filthy rags have been taken by Christ as well. And it opens up these vistas of beauty and goodness in our community. Can you imagine how healing of a place we can become if we allow this truth to sink down into our hearts? If, it, if we are the physical representation, right, in our community, in the way we relate to one another, of the type of righteousness that Christ wants to be for us, right, as we extend that grace and peace and goodness to people. Do you see how that tra changes and transforms a community of Jesus followers? It makes us so open and honest, both with our own shortcomings and with the shortcomings of others, that we become this, this healthy and vibrant community where people are able to actually deal with their stuff, right? When people are actually able to step into the life that Christ always had for them because they're not being judged. They're not feeling the guilt and the shame that keeps them coming back to that, those sins and those repetitive habits and those, those hang-ups and habits that so often plague us, right? It's actually not uh, love and acceptance that keep you in your sin, it's actually your guilt and your shame and your hiding, just for the record, right? When you feel loved and accepted by God, what it makes us want to do is walk away from those things. And when we see in the community, in the body of Christ, that love and acceptance um, personified in people, it just creates this community where we're always stepping and walking into love and acceptance and goodness and grace. You see? It has all these wonderful implications for us as a church as well. This is the type of church a type of church that does this, where families and individuals can step into wholeness, right? They, this is the type of church where, where um, broken families can be healed, where broken people can find their healing. This is the type of place where people uh, who have been hurt by the church can come and receive the grace and the healing of Jesus. In order, but in order for us to be that type of community, what we first have to come to this understanding of is that um, I don't have to be good in order to come to God, right? God has already come to me. 
and he has lent me his righteousness. He has given his righteousness to me, and I no longer have to carry it on my own, right? I no longer have to be good enough in order to please God. Fifth grade Nick doesn't have to be the good little boy in order for God to be happy with him. This truth, this truth that God is our righteousness is the truth that when, when, I, was in my, when I was in my room worried that I wasn't going to be good enough and that God was just going to judge me and I was never going to have the life that I wanted because I, was, I knew in my heart that I was not good enough. God was looking down on me going, I have, I have already loved you. I have already given myself for you. That's, that's a beat. Um, uh, I have already given myself for you. Here are my clothes. He wanted to clothe me in his righteousness then and there. If the band would come up, that'd be great. So today, maybe you're in this place and you were like me. You, there's this internal kind of, you have this internal picture of God that you're, you're always feeling like I need to hold this standard of goodness or righteousness or holiness or whatever word you use to fill in that gap. And that if I don't do those things, if I, if I mess up in any way, shape, or form, God is going to be displeased with me, right? Maybe you're, maybe you're like me. Maybe you struggle with the, the false image of God that I struggle with, which is on that side of the spectrum. And today, God wants to show you, he wants to tell you that, you, that he doesn't need you to be good. He wants you to be with him. And he wants to give you his gleaming clothing he wants to give you his beautiful robe in order that you can live into the life that he has for you. Yes, God wants you to walk away from the sin and the guilt that plague you. Yes, God wants you to step into further, um, further uh, paths of holiness and righteousness. But he, but he doesn't require that of you first. God loves you so that you will become, God loves you so that you will become good. He doesn't expect you to be good so that he can love you. This is a true and significant reality. And maybe you're on the other side of this spectrum, right? Maybe you're one of these people who gave up trying to be good a long time ago. Maybe you had this innate sense in your heart that you were not good from the get. And so you just cannot fathom a God who would come down to meet you, to be near you, to be with you, to give himself for you, and then to desire to exchange clothes with you. You can't really even get your head around a God who would do something like that. And to you, God is here, Jesus is here saying, I'd like to exchange clothes with you. I'd like to communicate to you that I love you and that you don't have, you cannot attain to righteousness on your own. But God in the person of Jesus, the icon of God, Jesus came down to us. He stooped down to our level. And he died for us. So that we might identify with his love and we could be resurrected with him into new life. It's this beautiful, beautiful thing. So the the passage in the parable of the prodigal son that always really gets me. So if you if any of you are familiar, Jesus told this story of the parable of the prodigal son. This, this was a son of a wealthy family and 
he wanted all his dad's money. He wanted his parents early, so he so he ran off and he spent all his money and um, got involved in all kinds of things and he lost all his money, and, uh, which was this huge disgrace to his father in that time. And he comes home thinking maybe I'm I'm out of money. I'm poor. I'm eating out of a pig trough. Maybe my dad uh, will take me back into the house and he'll just let me work as a servant. I, I don't attain to the to the status, to the level of son any longer because of the things that I've done. But maybe he'll, maybe he'll let me work in his house. Maybe he'll let me basically just survive. And when the son was still a long ways off, the father sees him and he runs to him. And what his dad says to him here is what always gets me. When, when the son was still when the son had come in and his father had embraced him, here's what he says to him. Here's what the father says to his servants. He says, quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. This son didn't deserve any of that. And this parable that God gives us is the parable of the Father. It's a parable of who God is and how he feels about us. That we can't in and of ourselves, right, if we look honestly in, into the core of our being, be anything of significance. But Christ has come to us. He's uh, died on the cross so that he could be our righteousness. And God looks at us he says, get the best robe and throw it around his or her shoulders. Get a ring and put it on their finger. I want to throw a party. I want to throw a party. And so as we sing this last song, I know time's getting away from us here, but as we sing this last song, um, I just want us to, I just want the spirit of God to remind us again of God's great and enduring love for us. And that this truth that God is our righteousness would sink down deep inside of us. Because the truth of the matter is all our minds, every one of our minds in this room, deceive us. They all catch us off guard. They all make us think, oh, I got to achieve to this level of goodness or else God's not going to be happy with me. It runs, it runs like a script in all of our minds. And the reality of the kingdom is that God wants us to give up that script entirely. And have the thing that draws us to God be his love and goodness. God has held out that he wants to be your righteousness. It doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are. God wants to be for you what you cannot be for yourself. And so today, my prayer is just that the spirit of the living God would reiterate that to us, that he would begin to replace the script in our brain that says, I, got, I need to be better, I need to be good, or else God won't love me, with the script that says, I'm accepted and I'm loved. And because of that, you can step in to the life that God would have. Would you stand with us as we sing the last song?